We're going to be in the book of Hebrews um, briefly. I just want to start there at least. Um, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 10. But really we're only using this passage as a kind of a springboard to explore um, what we want to look at this evening. I am this evening intending to end our series that we've been looking at for a few months now, looking at the, the theme of the Nazarites in Scripture. And I want to show you how everything that we've been exploring, in terms of what that vow opened up as a possibility of a way for living for God, and the characters that we've been exploring of Samson, Samuel, and then finally John the Baptist, how everything finds its resolution and focal point in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to talk about Jesus tonight, and I want to, um, I want to read this passage to you, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask God to come and speak to us. The book of Hebrews was written, um, it would seem, to some Jewish believers in Jesus in the first century, whose lives were torn between two different worlds, the, the call to follow him and to remain committed to him, but also the pull back to the old way and towards the acceptance of being, um, you know, in the familiar paths, as it were. And the great argument of the letter is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than any philosophy. He's better than any other option or religious option you could opt for. He is better. He is what your heart longs for. He's where you find rest. He's where you find peace. He's where you find peace with God. Jesus is better. And so this is an extraordinary letter. I encourage you to, to make an effort at some point to get familiar with it, understand it. But I want to read you Hebrews 10 because I think it gives us a, a lens through which we can understand Christ in this theme. Let's read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's speaking here about everything that the Old Testament law had um, made provision for, the opportunity for God's people to uh, experience acceptance and peace with God through the sacrificial system, the temple, the, the, the bulls and goats and other forms of sacrifices that were offered there. And the, the whole system of worship, and he's saying, all of this, everything that the Lord prescribed, everything that there was offered to you as God's people before the coming of Jesus, all of it was good, but it was insufficient. And all of it was a shadow of the reality, and the reality is Jesus. The coming of Jesus has changed everything. And then he adds these lines here. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ is better. Everything that preceded him was pointing to him, finds its resolution in him. He is the end of all that went before him, but also the beginning of a new hope for us because he alone can save by his perfect life, his perfect will, his perfect offering of himself upon the cross. I want to pray, and then we're going to wrestle with this some more. Father, We thank you that there is nothing like knowing and worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. No one in history has the ability to captivate in the way that he does. 
No one has commanded such affection, such allegiance, or such hatred. Dividing man from man and even causing that conflict within us. Lord, as our ears are opening to your word this evening, may our hearts be soft and our minds alive to your truth. And may the Holy Spirit come and give us a better glimpse of Jesus, of all he is for us and all that he has done. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, over these last few months, what we've been doing is we've been exploring the theme of the Nazarites in Scripture. These individuals who, there was a law written in Numbers chapter 6 in which God said, um, this is how you can devote yourself to me if you want to devote yourself to me in, in a special way. And then we looked at the story of these three prominent fat figures who are in Scripture. The Samson, uh, 11 or 1,200 years before Jesus. Then there's Samuel, uh, just over 900 years before Christ. And then John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, so contemporaneous with him. And my hope in this has been to stir you primarily, to awaken within you godly affections. The, um, the, the call of the Christian life is, of course, partly understanding. It's partly the will to obey and to follow the Lord. But underneath and around all of that is the longing, passion, and zeal, and love for God that is expressed through full-hearted devotion and commitment to him. And I believe that that's our calling. I believe that there is no other way to live the Christian life than to live it um, handbrake off with absolute passion and conviction. And so I, I trust that God's been at, way, at work in some of you and working within us together in, in ways to stir us up in that kind of sense. But at the same time, I'm fairly confident that some of you will have been confronted by the characters, the themes, and this notion that we've been looking at of what it means to be devoted to God. And you felt nothing but an awareness of your shortcomings, the inadequacies, the distance between your life and what you might aspire to or long for in your own walk with the Lord. And so we find ourselves in that kind of tension. It's a tension I experience when I see great athletes um, on the television, um, always at a distance, because I'm always sat on the sofa, of course, but you see them on the television and you see them on the Tour de France or in a marathon or whatever else it is. Um, men and women who have, who have dedicated their life to becoming exceptional and elite in their field. And there's part of you that gets motivated. You can't help but strap on your running shoes or suddenly find yourself outside trying to get a little bit fitter. But at the same time, you feel crushed and you feel the, the, inad, the, the ineptitude of your flabby flesh trying to, to um, achieve anything in terms of uh, attaining some kind of sporting prowess and the distance there. So there's motivation and there's also depression that seem to co-mingle, at least within my own mind. Am I the only one who's experiences this? Um, and of course, there's something like that when we encounter inspiring men and women of God, especially in scripture. There is the, the awakening of desire, which is a good thing. But it's quickly accompanied by that awareness of a kind of condemnation or even a shame or an awareness I'm not enough and I cannot do enough. And this is why the Christian faith is so extraordinary because in it we find the liberty and the life-giving reality that it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and not about you or about me. I love how Paul expresses this in, in the letter to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1. He says that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You want to understand the Christian faith? That's it. It is all about Jesus. Which means that when we find ourselves turning our gaze inward feeling an increasing sense of our inadequacy and shortcomings. Of course, there's a measure of that that is necessary. God calls us into a life of repentance. But to remain there is to miss the point. Because God calls your gaze upward and he says, look at my son, look at Jesus. Look at him, look at what he has done for you. Your faith finds its resolution, its rest when you're gazing on him. In fact, looking at him is the power to change. 
Just a little bit later in that letter in Colossians 3, Paul says, if, you, if then you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if you've received this new life in you, this faith that gives you new life, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul shows us there, as well as elsewhere, that the entire power to live the Christian life is, the, is found in getting a clearer gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see him, when you understand him, when he becomes the object of your desire and your affection, he begins to imprint his life, his image on you. You're changed by Jesus. So I want to encourage you this evening, as we draw this series to a close, let's lift our eyes up off of ourselves and onto him. I want to help you to see this by helping you see that everything that we've been exploring and the characters that we've been looking at, all of them are pointing to him, directing us to Jesus as the resolution of this theme. In a sense, he's the last of the Nazarites. So I want to ask the question, well, how is that so? How does this obscure law and these strange stories that we've been exploring, how does it all point us to Jesus? I know some of you are not familiar with the stories I'm talking about. I'll try and give you a brief summary as we go along. But in a sense, the whole idea is captured in what we read here in Hebrews chapter 10, where he said that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. When I last climbed um, a a mountain with my family, early we we caught the sunrise. One of the extraordinary things we saw as the sun was rising was the shadow of the mountain, this enormous mountain, the shadow that it cast on the land beneath You got a greater appreciation of the enormity of the mountain itself when you saw its shadow. When you're reading scripture, so much of what you're reading there is merely the shadow. The reality is Jesus. Everything finds its resolution, its end, its focal point in him. It's true most obviously, isn't it, of the prophecies, all the prophetic scriptures that direct us to Jesus, but it's true in so many other ways. The sacrificial system. Even the stories, as we're going to explore this evening. How can we see Jesus in all of this? Let me show you. The first thing I want you to understand is that the vow itself, if you cast your mind back to whenever it was that we began, we explored Numbers chapter 6 and the vow itself, the Nazarite vow. And here's what it was about. If you ask what was the Nazarite vow about, it was about this. It was about a desire that might emerge within individuals within the community of faith, Israelites who would at times feel an awakening, a stirring in their spirit in which they wanted to give more to God. And so God, in that that cry, that yearning, saying, I want to live for you more wholeheartedly, God made provision within the law. And the provision he made was was these uh, these requirements. They could enter into a vow, voluntarily enter into a vow in which they they committed not to to drink any wine, not to cut their hair, let it grow out and grow long, and uh, not to touch anything that had died, which was more difficult, obviously, in the ancient world. And uh, in, 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 in so doing, God created a structure for them that could channel their desires towards him. So that passion, that vigor, that yearning to be more wholehearted for God could find its outlet as they they enter into a season of vow. Usually it was temporary, maybe even just a short season. In In the stories that we've been exploring, it was a lifelong experience. But either way, any which way you look at it, it was a whole life commitment and a sacrificial commitment to that, a desire to live for God. Now, That's the summary of the Nazarite law itself. What about Jesus? Was he a Nazarite? And the short answer is, no, he was not. The Lord Jesus Christ, in some ways, seems to be the opposite of the Nazarites. If the Nazarites were all about self-denial, the Lord Jesus came, and if he got one criticism above any, it tended to be that he was far too interested in attending too many parties with people who had scandalous reputations. In fact, he draws attention to this. Um, In Matthew 11, he's drawn a contrast between himself and his cousin John, John the Baptist, who was a Nazarite, 
who lived this austere life, who was out in the wilderness, who is um, wearing this camel hair garment, who has this fierce preacher with fire in his eyes, who was known for his, his extraordinary commitment to God. And Jesus draws a contrast between himself and John. He said that John came neither eating nor drinking. So that's a kind of, that's a summary of John's John's devotion to God, he was very self-controlled and self-denying in, the, in his self-control. He said, he came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. So they didn't like him. Because when you meet somebody who has that kind of fierce holiness, you feel uncomfortable. But then he says, but the Son of Man, which is his way of speaking about himself, he came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Of course, the irony here is that you can't do right for doing wrong. Whichever, whichever sort of mode God's person comes in, whether it's the John the Baptist or Jesus, he's rejected either way. But Christ draws this contrast between himself and John, this Nazarite. And so the immediate answer to the question, was Jesus a Nazarite? Was he devoted to God in that particular way? Is obviously, no, he wasn't. And in fact, the contrasts are quite stark when you begin to think about it. The Nazarites were called not to drink any wine. Jesus had a reputation for making extraordinary wine and distributing it lavishly at a wedding, in particular in, in Cana. And he also partook. He wasn't, he wasn't shy of drinking. I'm not saying that he ever went too far, but it seems that Jesus was relaxed with wine. The Nazarites had this long, unkempt hair, this appearance that broadcast to everyone around that they were dedicated to God for a season. And so you just had to glance at them and you see the kind of the matted long hair and you knew, okay, that guy's under a Nazarite vow. Jesus, well, we know very, almost next to nothing about his appearance, but the one hint we have in Isaiah 53, it tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And I take that to mean that, that Christ had nothing distinguishable about his appearance. It wasn't that he ever gained a following through the way he looked or any particular grandeur or distinctiveness about his appearance. And unquestionably, he, he didn't have long hair. So all the artist depictions are undoubtedly wrong as far as I'm concerned. And then the Nazarites were told not to avoid death and defilement because under the law, if you touched a dead body, there was something that made you ceremonially unclean. It meant you couldn't partake in the, the, the worship for a season with, with God's people. And so the Nazarites were to keep themselves separate from death and defilement. Wherever you see Jesus go, he moves towards those things. He touches dead bodies to raise them from the dead. He comes into contact with all kinds of defilement, like the lepers, like the woman who was bleeding for, for 12 years. But rather than him becoming defiled by, these, by the contact, the holiness of his person overwhelms and banishes the defilement from those around him. So on the surface of it, Christ is almost the very opposite of the Nazarites. And yet, I think in that vow, you see the resonances of him. It's a little bit like this. You ever make a jigsaw puzzle, and sometimes you see an odd-shaped hole in the puzzle, and your mind clicks, and you think, I saw that piece. The exact shape. The, the whole is the opposite to the piece, but the piece fits the image perfectly. And here when you transpose Christ over the vow itself, what you discover is that all the structures of the vow, the, the, the legal requirements of what it meant to enter into the vow, all those things are just training wheels. It almost doesn't matter what those promises are, the wine, the hair, the dead bodies, all that stuff is just training wheels because what it was really about was about awakening a heart of devotion to God, channeling those desires. And when Christ comes along, as it says here in Hebrews 10, he, he says, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. In other words, not only did God not desire the endless cycles of dead animals anymore, even the vows, he doesn't desire these things anymore but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. 
So even if on the surface of it, Christ's life wasn't marked by those same distinctive um, characteristics, the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus Christ was one of total, unconditional, absolute, perfect surrender and obedience to the Father. He had a perfect will. And in that way, all that the vow was stretching towards an awakening within God's people that was pointing ahead to the arrival of this one man whose whole life would embody that, that passionate zeal to obey the Lord. The vow itself points us to Jesus. Then let me show you how the stories point us to Jesus, and we'll just work through each of them briefly. We began, if you recall, with Samson. He came in Judges chapter 13. The first thing you learn about him is that his parents were barren. They were unable to conceive. What happens? An angel visits, firstly, Samson's mother, and then appears to both Samson's mother and father. And as he appears, he begins to speak promises about a child that they would conceive. He says, Behold, you're barren, not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And there are requirements there. It says, therefore, be careful. Drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive, bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. So Samson began with a promise. And the angel's promise for this boy was that he would be consecrated to God even from before his birth. He was to serve God with all his life. It says a little bit further on there, the child should be called a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And so as Samson emerges on the scene, his calling that's described here for us in Judges 13, it says he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. What is his call? Well, in the Old Testament, there are basically three models of leadership, three types of leaders who lead God's people. There are prophets who speak the word of God, reveal truth about God to the people with words and with uh, poetry. Then there are priests who uh, conduct the worship of God's people, who make sacrifices and lead God's people, intermediate between God and the people so that they can, the people can draw near to God. And then there are kings who govern the people, who execute justice, who conduct warfare in order to protect God's people from her enemies. The first of the Nazarites we meet, Samson, he fits the model of the king-type leader. He's not an actual king because he preceded the arrival of the kings, but he's a king-type leader. The great gift in his life, if you remember, is to smash things, to smash skulls mainly, actually. And uh, so he arrives on the scene opposing God's enemies, empowered by God's spirit to lead God's people and bring them deliverance from the oppression that they're experiencing. And all of this is prophesied in, in this miraculous birth to a barren parents, the way that God took hold of him from the womb and the fact that he's enveloped with this vow, he is to be a Nazarite from the womb for God for this purpose of being a king-type leader. Then we met Samuel. He arrives a couple hundred years later in the biblical narrative. And again, we find this same thing. His mother, Hannah, is barren. She's unable to conceive. We meet her at the beginning of 1 Samuel. We meet her in tears before the temple where she's gone to worship God. And there's an agony of soul that she is expressing there in which you feel the grief that she has experienced. And she begins to make a vow to God. and She begins to consecrate to God. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. And a little later on, not so long after this, she conceives a child. It tells us that in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. 
She called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. And if Samuel came along, if Samson was a kind of king-type leader, Samuel, although his, his main gifting was as a prophet, the role he occupied in the life of the nation was a kind of priest-type leader. You see it here in the way that even from his infancy as a child, Hannah offers him to God to work in the temple under the leadership of Eli, the high priest. And so it says here in 1 Samuel 22, she said, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. A priest's main calling and business in life was to dwell in God's presence. So they could commune with God in uninterrupted devotion to him, but also enter into the labor and the work of priesthood that would allow God's people to experience a deeper relationship with God. Samuel lives out his whole life in that way. In fact, a little bit later in the book when it's described how he summarizes Samuel's life and labors, he says he went around judging the people and he built an altar to the Lord. Only somebody in the priest-type mold of leadership could build an altar in the way that he does. He occupies, his kind of occupation is as a priest leader. So we have Samson, this kind of king. Then we have Samuel, the second of our Nazarites, who's a kind of priest. And then finally we meet John the Baptist. This is way over in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1. And you hear again the same exact themes emerging we're told in, in this chapter how his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are old. Do you remember how Zechariah was a priest and he, by lot, he got this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter into the presence of God in the temple and do his priestly duty there. And when he's there in the darkness of the inner sanctum, this area within the temple, the holy place, Gabriel appears to him. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And it goes on a little bit later, says he must not drink wine or strong drink. So he was to be a Nazarite like the others who'd gone before him. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And then his calling, he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now what is extraordinary to me as I read these accounts and relay the summary of them to you is the amazing way in which these three characters have these same resonances. All of them born to barren parents, conceived by the power of the spirit, all of them set apart to God from the womb that their whole lives might be dedicated to God from birth until death. And each of them called to serve the nation as a kind of servant leader, but in three distinct ways. If Samson is serving as a kind of king-type leader, a warrior king, if Samuel is serving as a priest-type leader, John the Baptist arrives as the last of these Nazarites as a prophet, someone who would speak God's word. And the thing that he was most called to do was to prophesy the coming of the Messiah, the arrival of King Jesus. And then we meet Christ himself. His mother is a virgin. His birth strikes us as even more supernaturally, supernaturally impossible, if I can put it like that. He also is set apart to God from the womb. You hear how it's, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Whereas each of these men who preceded the coming of Christ, all their stories show us slightly different facets of what it means to be a leader of God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ arrives on the scene and he, he brings together all of these elements in himself. He is a king because he is the eternal king, the Son of God who is destined to rule the world. Of course, he came in poverty and in ignominy, 
But through his death and through his resurrection, he has been, he has been, he's, he's received his, his kingship, his authority over all things through the word of the Father. The scriptures tell us that all history is bending toward the, the singular purpose that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In other words, God the Father's intention is that everything in creation will eventually confess the kingship of Jesus. He's the eternal king. He was also given to us as a priest. If our one great problem is that our sin has separated us from God and made it impossible for us to experience peace in life because of the shame, because of the the sense of our guilt and our unworthiness and our defilement that we compound every day despite our best efforts to live better lives. If that is the great problem of humanity, God gave us the provision of a priest who would make atonement for our sin not by the blood of bulls and goats and all the other sacrifices that were available, but by his own blood, by the one final sacrifice of himself, and live forever to intercede for you and I before the Father in the throne room. The scriptures say that we have an advocate, a representative, someone who who pleads our cause, So that when you are cast down in your sin and you're aware of your guilt and you're aware of your unworthiness, you know that before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ is making a plea on your behalf. And he's not pointing to your righteousness and your good acts and saying, well, look, yeah, they did this wrong, but also do take note of this. He's not doing that at all. Rather, he is proclaiming that his blood shed once for all on the cross in Calvary is enough to atone for you and I. And he's also a prophet. Without God speaking to us, we'd know nothing about him. And the entirety of the scriptures is an ascending and growing and building revelation, but it all reaches its focal point in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in John's gospel that he is the word of God made flesh, which I understand to mean that instead of God simply speaking through, through words, he also became embodied, that God walked on this earth so that we could touch him and experience him. And the revelation of God was emanating from who he was as a man. So all of the remaining questions and and doubts and puzzles we have about who God is and how we can know God and what he's like, all of that finds its peace when you look at Jesus. The beginning of the book of Hebrews opens in this striking way. He says, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There were a long line of prophets, men and women, who spoke God's truth. But he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He goes on to describe as the the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when I see these kinds of the way the scriptures build, and you see the kind of the extraordinary ways in which the threads all draw together. There's something that you just want to sit and marinate in that, and it is kind of overwhelming at times. The more you understand, the more you explore, the more dimensions of scripture you realize, and how all of it finds its conclusion in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why has God given us the story in this way? And partly it was because. You know, everything that we've been exploring, like the stories of the Nazarites, all of it is to prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus. It was to prepare people for the arrival of King Jesus. If you went into the garage of a great inventor who'd made some product that had changed the world, you might discover there in old boxes and on shelves prototypes of, of, um, of the product which eventually went to market. And the prototypes will be imperfect versions of what was intended 
that needed a tweak here to the design or the materials or the construction. But eventually, a great inventor will arrive at, at the model that he intended. And there's a sense in which everything you read of in Scripture, and especially when you see these stories and you see these men whose, whose lives offer something to God, but also in imperfection, they're, they're like these prototypes that tell us that the, the ultimate, the end product, so to speak, Jesus, he's coming. All of it was to prepare our hearts for him, but also so that when you read back, and the more you read the Bible, the more your eyes are open to, to all the ways that God has, has weaved his story together. It's so that you see the hands of a single author over the entirety of the story. You sit back and marvel and think, only God could have done this. If you listen to any great um, work of music, like one of the great classical symphonies or something like this, one thing you discover is that the great artists have themes that run through their work. It's true of painters as well. Themes that run through the work. Styles that reoccur from piece to piece. And there's something of that in the story of the world and the story of Scripture. The great crescendo was Jesus. But you see the resonances of his person and work and all that he would be for us in all that preceded him. And then you sit back and you, you wonder. Even the failings of the Nazarites point us to Christ. If all that preceded was shadow, imperfect shadow, it makes you long for the reality. As I was studying these stories, one of the things, you know, it's true of any, the study of any character in Scripture. You, you feel a, a measure of frustration with the imperfections of our humanity. We met Samson, who, for all his spirit gifting as that kind of warrior leader, he has no real limiter to his anger, so that what ought to be righteous anger, focused on true enemies, becomes just this uncontrolled, um, this uncontrolled fury that ultimately damages those around him. And worse than that, he's a captive to his own lust. So there's something in him you admire, but there's also, there's also so much in him that you think is not worthy of admiration. And the lusts and the, 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 the avarice in him that draws him back to these young women ultimately is his downfall as one of them betrays him. And he ends up eyes gouged head-shaved, captured by the Philistines, and strapped to it, between pillars, chained up between pillars in the great temple of the Philistine gods where he dies. He dies with his arms stretched out, by the way, in that cruciform posture, pushing the pillars. And so even there, you see something of Christ in him. But he's imperfect. Jesus arrives on the scene, and yes, he experiences righteous anger. Jesus hates sin. Do you know that? When he encounters the wickedness and oppression and the corruption that had built up around the temple in which all these traders are buying and selling um, the, the, the various sacrifices and skimming off a profit so that people... You know, it was basically a monopoly market. As people went to temple, they had to buy the animals there and they were being gouged in the process. Jesus takes out a whip. Haven't you read that this is a house of prayer? He drives them out in his anger. But the anger of Jesus that fights for justice, that, that hates oppression, that despises sin, the anger of Jesus never is uncontrolled. It's a reassuring anger that tells us that he, is, he cares about righteousness. And where women must have felt like they were being leered over when they were near to Samson, is the most broken, the most abused, the most used women in society who are drawn to Jesus because in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ they find safety. The great flaw of all the kings in the Old Testament 
it seems, not all of them, but many of them, one of the great flaws was that their position gave them license sexually. It's certainly true of a few key characters, prominent kings. The Lord Jesus Christ was purity personified. He is pure. The brokenness of these women who had been used by man finds its healing when they meet him and they meet his acceptance and his love and his cherishing of who they are so that they are healed and they are forgiven and they are cleansed. I'm not sure that you see any greater expressions of devotion and worship in the Gospels than from those women who find peace when they meet Jesus. That's the kind of king he is. Samuel's great failure was, in a sense, a failure in his priestly duty. The priests were called to be the teachers of God's people and to imprint the law and God's righteousness on the nation. Towards the end of Samuel's life, when he's an old man, we learn that he made his sons judges over Israel. In other words, successors to himself. But it tells us there that his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So for all that is admirable about Samuel, he failed in the end to achieve what ought to have been his most central mission in life, which is to raise his boys to love God and hate sin. It's an interesting side note, by the way, that in the New Testament, if you want to understand what are one of the core qualifying characteristics of leadership within God's people, it's the ability to raise a family to know and love God. Samuel fails in this, and therefore he fails in that kind of priestly duty. The Lord Jesus Christ comes as our perfect priest who teaches us God's way who atones for us and who transforms us and who does not let go of you until he accomplishes the transformation that he has intended for you, which is to make you like himself. That's the gospel, my friend. You feel a frustration with yourself? Jesus hasn't finished with you and he will not fail you. And where John the Baptist, it seems... His flaw surfaces right at the very end of his life. A man known for his prophetic message, his fiery conviction and certainty, his ability to get in the face of the powerful and the lowly and call people to righteousness and repentance. He was such a clear, commanding voice. And yet at the very end of his life, we discover him in prison, soon to be executed And he's wavering. The way he had so powerfully announced Jesus coming. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now he's uncertain. And I don't think it's wrong necessarily to experience doubt. But it shows you how human he was that he did. And he sends messengers to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? But the Lord Jesus Christ distinguishes himself even from his cousin John. And that his voice and preaching of the truth did not waver. To see Christ is to see the image of God. He's the prophet who was to come. In understanding these contrasts between Christ, the perfect one, and all these characters who went before him, there's a warning there. The warning is that in a world that looks for solutions in people, people will always let you down. But there's an encouragement. Jesus is better. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. I want to close with a few conclusions and bring this series to its end. Number one, I pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to stir you that you will belong to him entirely. That's been the purpose and heart of this series. As I said earlier, I don't think there's any other way to live the Christian life. I think it's better, in a sense, to walk away entirely than to try and live in that uncomfortable place in the middle where you accept something of Christ, but you don't give him your all. Where you profess him, but your heart isn't really his. I think that's a dangerous place to be, and I think it's a place where you must not stay. And you know when you're in that place. You know when you're living a life of compromise. You know when your heart isn't his. My prayer is, my God, continue to stir you, that you'll give your life to him entirely. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German pastor, theologian, Around the time the ascension of the Nazis, who distinguished himself by his opposition to all that that regime was about. He loved Jesus. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So my first reflection, friend, is may the Lord continue to stir within you that yearning My life must belong to him entirely. There's no other way to live. Here's my second reflection. Your devotion, your obedience, your consecration to God will always be flawed, be inadequate in itself, be imperfect. Living In this world, in this flesh, we are creatures torn between desires. And you will no doubt sin and you will fail. I love how Psalm 103 offers comfort to us in this. It says that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame He remembers that we are dust. Sometimes we feel even that we cannot even experience compassion to our own selves because we feel so full of self-loathing in our sin, in the complexity of our mixed desires and such. And the comfort of Scripture is that the Father loves you and he remembers that you're dust. Just this morning, my youngest child lied to me for, I think it was the first time that I know of. (laughs) You don't always know if you've caught them in a lie. And as I looked at her, my heart melted. She was lying to me because she didn't want to get in trouble. I'm not saying I dealt with that correctly. I probably should have disciplined her. I did tell her off, but, but I felt compassion. And that's how the Father feels towards us. So yes, may God stir you, but you know you're going to fail, don't you? And you'll fail repeatedly. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Here's my third reflection. This is why the Bible directs you to look at Jesus, who is the only worthy one. The message of Hebrews 10, what we've been reading, is that he is the one who offered his will to God perfectly. And that will was enough. God accepted his willing heart and his sacrifice of himself as he gave himself to us. That is why his death, 
uniquely of all the deaths that have taken place in the history of the world, Christ's death alone has atoning power to cover sin. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's drawing on all the memory and experience he'd had of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, how the animals would be slaughtered, how their, their bodies would be, would be laid on the altar onto a great fire and how they'd be consumed and burned to a cinder and how the smoke would rise up and fill Jerusalem with the smell, the aroma, the fragrance of the burning meat and how it's said in Scripture that this, the fragrance would be pleasing to God. And he's saying that was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his perfect life, because of his perfect will, because of his surrender to the Father, when he died on the cross, his life was like a fragrant offering to God. And the smell atoned and covered up your sin and my sin. That's why it says here in Hebrews 10, a little bit further on, it says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, whatever you offer to God will never be enough can never atone. You cannot atone for your sin. It is the most liberating truth that the Christian faith can offer you because Christ has done it already. So that you are being, you're being made perfect by that once for all sacrifice. And so I bring you to my last conclusion. Now Jesus stands before you as the leader that your heart longs for and needs and desires. He's the king you need to rule your heart. If you find that your heart is a turmoil of, of anxiety and fear and uncertainty or of rebellion and frustration and all those sort of things, it finds its peace when you surrender to Jesus and you say, Lord, you're king of my life. That's how your heart can find peace. He's the priest that you need, you desperately need to atone for your sin and intercede for you before the Father. You can try and stand before God and make your own plea. Or you can trust Jesus to do it for you. And Christ is there, ever living, to intercede for you and I. And he's the prophet that you must listen to. Whose voice rings out with the clarity of truth that cuts through all the lies. That brings freedom, liberty to those in oppression and confusion and doubt and fear. And brings you into the knowledge of God. Jesus is the leader you need. He's the leader our hearts long for. And it's only in him that we find rest.